Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. Today is Tuesday, July 31st, 2018. I'm your host, Jim Swift, stepping in for Charlie Sykes, who is on assignment today. He will be back tomorrow. Joining me in the studio here in Washington is Michael Warren, a senior writer who focuses on the White House, and Chris Deaton from Atlanta, Georgia, uh, one of our deputy online editors. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Jim. Sure. So, big news of the day, a sort of bizarre announcement from the White House that John Kelly is going to be staying on, uh, on, on trade deadline day, no less. Uh, the, the White House has announced that their star chief of staff uh, is going to remain with the team through 2020 per GM Trump. Um, have you thought, Michael, that there, in the past, whether it was Obama or Bush or anyone else, that there's been such sort of announcement that the chief of staff is going to keep his job for two more years? Yeah, this seems like a, uh, a almost direct rebuke of the media reports from the last several days and weeks. And there was the most recent one was from um, uh, my friend Eliana Johnson in Politico, uh, that uh, that Kelly was not only um, on his way out, but was essentially ineffective and has been ineffective as a chief of staff for the last uh, several months. So this seems like, uh, like an announcement designed to kind of um, uh, to, to to sort of pull the rug out from all all of those reports, which I don't doubt are tr- are are true. I mean, it it is it, it is very apparent that that Kelly has no none of the power that he might have had one year ago, which is when he started, um, uh, and just to sort of change the way things operated in the White House. He's had some success uh, keeping things a little more on track than Wrights Priebus did, um, but but really things have kind of reverted back to the norm, which is that Donald Trump is his own chief of staff. And um, but this is a little strange. I mean, you would have thought, um, you know, Mick Mulvaney, uh, who was thought in many ways to be a uh, the next possible chief of staff, and look very well may be the next chief of staff sooner than 2020. Yeah. Um, just because Trump announces it doesn't mean it's going to be true. Um, but like, like he has his full faith and confidence in them, and then two days later they're gone. Right. Exactly. This, yeah. This this announcement might be uh, the worst thing that could happen to John Kelly's job security, but. Um, the, uh, Mick Mulvaney said, you know, look, uh, chief of staff um, in a White House is anywhere from about 12 to 18 months. Um, we're now at 12 months, maybe another six months, somewhere in the next six months. Uh, Kelly will leave. He's apparently not happy in the job. It, it's a little strange. Um, I would have thought if there was going to be any change, um, it would happen either this month in August, so maybe that's why he feels like he has to come out and, and say this, or, or right after the 2018 midterm election. So uh, I guess Kelly's going to stick around, but I'm not quite sure what exactly he's going to be doing for, between now and 2020. Yeah, it's going to be. I mean, we're less than 100 days out until the primary, or to the excuse me, the midterm elections. And uh, what we have, uh, Chris, if you want to give some comment on this, is we have uh, senators meeting with uh, Judge Kavanaugh, uh, who, if uh, all reports are to be believed, will probably get a confirmation vote in the Senate, barring no scandal or no kind of explosion. Probably at the uh, Mitch McConnell's, uh, you know, ideal time for uh, making it politically painful for moderate Democrats. What have you been uh, seeing on this? Yeah, I, I would imagine that from <clears throat> certainly what I've heard that, you know, it would be in uh, minority leader Schumer's interest to uh, try to, you know, twist the uh, prong a little bit by prolonging people not committing, um, giving plenty of time for uh, Democrats to be assuaged about them not committing to, uh, you know, jump across the aisle, give Republicans enough time to get cold feet. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely going to be a, 
uh, a potentially uncomfortable thing for Dems there. I know I think I saw that Joe Manchin is going to be meeting with uh, Kavanaugh a second time here uh, at some point. So that's something to keep an eye on, certainly. Um, one thing quickly, though, to Mike's point that I, I just wanted to look this up while I was sitting here about the this whole notion of chiefs of staff essentially having a shelf life of something like 12 to 18 months. Really, the only guy since like the 1980s who has been an outlier in that regard was the uh, Bush 43 presidency. I mean, it was Card and Joshua Bolton, and that was it. Um, I think people might forget the chief of staff turnover that happened in the Obama White House. There were five of them, one serving on an interim basis. So, you know, the idea that there could be a third one before 2020, I know that we throw our hands up in the air and say the turnover inside of the White House is absolutely preposterous how quickly uh, it turns over. But it actually isn't all that unprecedented. It really is a job that has a lot of churn to it. Especially considering that the space-time continuum of the news cycle under Trump means that actually, you know, it's been 16 years and John <laughs> Kelly is actually the longest-serving chief of staff under uh, under the news cycle Trump time uh, continuum. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, you know, you know that's, a, there's a, that's a good point, Chris. On the other hand, um, I mean, the, the, the turnover outside of the chief of staff's uh, role uh, really is – I mean, there is a bigger churn in, mm-hmm. the, in the Trump White House than in previous White Houses. Um, and and it's, it is remarkable, actually, how long Kelly has hung on because, it, it, remember, Wright's previous sort of came in. There was really nobody else – uh, to take the job from uh, uh, to, to take the job over when Trump was inaugurated, um, and Reince was never a comfortable fit. He was never that close with Trump, uh, and in fact, been a little antagonistic with the Trump campaign early on in the primary. Um, and, and so, okay, maybe that doesn't make a lot of sense. But Kelly really doesn't make sense. I, I know that, that the president likes his generals. But he was not even <laughs> notified that he was going to get the job before Trump tweeted it out one year ago. So mm-hmm. um, there was no reason to think that Kelly would would necessarily be all that loyal to uh, to President Trump, particularly if we believe the reports, which I I believe are true, um, that he's absolutely miserable on the job. So it's it's actually remarkable <laughs> that he stuck around as long as he has. Yeah, there's like the you know the, the the Mac McClarty standard. I think that he was around under Clinton for like maybe something like 15 months or something. So he's like the perfect midpoint of what that job's expiration date should be. But then to your point, not a whole lot of administrations have a mooch type of scenario where you've got <laughs> where you've got to do it around in a pretty high White House staff position for all of 11 days. Well, this seems like a good uh, point to take a pivot here just to a word from our sponsor that our regular host, Charlie Sykes, will read to you right now. The Daily Standard podcast is brought to you today by RX Bar. Now, that's a whole food protein bar. So what does that mean? Their bars are made with 100% whole ingredients. Ingredients. A couple of years ago, uh, RX Bar called BS on other protein bars because there wasn't a protein bar out there that wasn't full of artificial ingredients, fillers, preservatives. So that's why RX Bar set out to create a new kind of protein bar with a few simple, clean ingredients and where every ingredient serves a purpose. So they label all these core ingredients, things like egg whites, dates, and nuts, right on the front of the package. And the ingredients that make up the texture and the taste are on the back, you know, you know, cocoa, uh, coconut, etc. Uh, you know, and again, these core ingredients are what do all the talking. It's like eating three egg whites, two dates, and six, uh, six almonds. And they come in 11 delicious flavor varieties. And I will tell you, um, as somebody that uh, travels, in fact, uh, today I'm I'm actually leaving the country. I decided that it's time for me to go to Canada. So I'm going to be on a, on a plane for some time. And I'm going to take along the RX bars because they are the perfect snack. 
Um, then we have a special offer for listeners of this podcast for 20% off your first order. Visit rxbar.com slash standard and enter promo code standard. Again, that's rxbar.com standard. Enter promo code standard for 25% off. Thanks, Charlie. Mike, yesterday, uh, President Trump was with Italy's new um, prime minister or president? I forget. Prime which. minister. And he 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 does a, a centrist right, but also populist. He manages a coalition there in, in their government. And at the press conference yesterday, President Trump said that he would be willing to meet with Iran under no preconditions. Why? <laughs> so, yeah, well, let's let's back up real quick. So this was an interesting um, meeting. Uh, uh, Giuseppe Conte is the new prime minister, and, and there's a, a sort of a whole bunch of uh, rigmarole that went through creating this coalition and finding a prime minister. The um, Italian president, uh, under their system, sort of uh, has to approve the prime minister uh, and did not approve this five-star movement, which is kind of a very populist, non-ideological movement, and the League, which is kind of a northern nationalistic or re- regionalistic party, uh, a conservative party. I love these names. Yeah, yeah, the League. <laughs> it was originally the Northern League, and then it became the League um, uh, when when they went national. Um so, so the whole thing. So, so this guy is kind of, or certainly in Trump's own mind, is kind of a Trump-like figure. He's he's gone pretty hard against immigration into Italy um, as an issue, and that and the party has very the, the the coalition, I should say, has been very much made this uh, an issue. But the whole sort of interaction that the two men had yesterday had me thinking about the way in which Trump really um, uh, kind of views foreign relations as like. Uh, is negotiations and communication between two people uh, right statecraft is actually just between leaders yeah. and um, none of the none of the sort of apparatuses below uh, or any of the conventions or even any of the policies that are existing between say you know say United States policy on one country or the European Union or whatever those matter a lot less than like the president's own uh, relationship with the person he kept, they kept talking about how much they love each other essentially mm-hmm. in this and then it was it was almost like it was almost as if uh, the president or the guy who asked the question at the press conference was reading my mind because he asked this question about Hassan Rouhani, uh, the Iranian pre- uh, the Iranian president who um, uh, the, the, he and he and Trump have been sort of going back and forth uh, about these sanctions that are about to be lift, uh, about to be reimposed, and 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 Trump sort of confirmed what I was saying. He said, "Well, you know." Uh, I love meeting. I love meeting. Meaning is a good thing for our country. I love and, lamp. Yeah. Um, but it's true. I mean, it, uh, that is a distillation of his view of things, meeting and interactions between leaders. And so he said uh, no preconditions. I think this was a totally off the cuff kind of he was asked a question, would you be willing to meet? And he sort of says, well, of course I would. Well, this is exactly what um, Republicans, I think, rightly in 2008 said this was crazy. And not just Republicans, Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primary went after President Obama, then then candidate Obama for the same thing, which was the idea of of, of talking with these um, with these leaders in these rogue nations in Iran. If it wasn't a rogue nation in two thousand and eight, which it was, it certainly is now ten years later. Um, this is that th- that this was you know unconscionable. Uh, now it, it seems to be what the president uh, said, oh, yeah, sure, I'm willing to meet with them if they're ready. He says they're not ready and all these things. But Nobody at the White House, nobody at the State Department is preparing for a one-on-one meeting with Hassan Rouhani and and, and Donald Trump, Uh, you know, I guess until they 
until they are, until the president yeah. decides that this is what he's going to do. I think it was totally off off the cuff and, and, and dangerous, too. I mean, it's very uh, – it, it risks – and we have an editorial about this at the, at the Standard today. Um, it really risks m- repeating the same mistakes um, – of the of the Obama administration's approach to Iran, um, which was so focused on the Iran nuclear deal, and clearly that's where Rouhani wants. If there were to be a one-on-one meeting, it would be about the, a, a deal, a nuclear deal, and specifically regarding these sanctions, which it's it's, it's very important from from a Iran hawk perspective uh, to keep those sanctions, uh, uh, reinstate them, and keep them on Iran. I'll throw this out to either of you guys, so feel free to jump in, but. I'm not sure how much this this kind of hypocrisy here, in a way, uh, will, will matter to voters. Uh, I mean, we know that the MAGA, far right Trump, um, you know, voting block and its um, you know media folks are going to say, you know, this is just proof that the president is such a great leader. I mean, we're, they'll they'll just paper over the fact that ten years ago. Pretty much everyone on the right and some on the left, as you noted, Mike, were saying this is just such a, t- a terrible idea. Um, but as you also observe, it's it's not something that's likely to happen in the short term. Do any of you guys think voters are going to care about this, or is this just you know us in Washington who have paid too close an eye on things, uh, you know, just peeling back the layers of the onion that that voters really won't care about? Well, well, two things, Jim. I mean, number one, uh, I think we just crossed the. 20-month mark of Trump saying that he was going to go chill in Islamabad with Prime Minister Sharif. I mean, I that was right after the election, um, and I guess, you know, the readout of the call during the transition, oh, yeah, I'm totally going to go to Pakistan and hang out. And a lot of people were kind of raising their eyebrows, you know, with that back then. Now, obviously, you should compare, you know, Pakistan to Iran. That's not exactly apples to apples, but nevertheless, a country with which we've had somewhat of a tendentious relationship uh, in modern times. So I think that we've been dealing with this type of off-the-cuff, one-on-one, let's just sit down and talk to somebody, even if it could be an eyebrow-raising experience uh, from day one. When you have people who, and this is, you know, Trump himself selling the idea of, trust Trump. You know, one of the foremost Twitter proponents of Donald Trump we have seen is Bill Mitchell. And what's his own, what's his whole tagline? Trust Trump. And we have seen a lot of his surrogates say that, you know, you have to trust in him. Trump uh, adopting the attitude of I alone can fix it. When you have somebody who's saying that, and when you have surrogates who are feeding into that mentality, what else do you expect? I think it's only a matter of course that they would not care about this simply because they trust him to do anything. Yeah, it's it's just math, as Bill Mitchell would say. Um, what I I have what I have yet to see though is you know a lot of reactions from from those on the left. I mean, obviously, um, you know, there's there's a little bit of hypocrisy on both sides where. Uh, you know, President Trump was the worst leader in the world for getting rid of the Iran or getting out of the Iran deal. But, you know, now he's suggesting he's willing to go down and sit down and meet with him. I mean, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it's it's hard to crystallize this uh, as a campaign um, message for challengers and defenders, do you think, on the left? No, I mean, if, if there's going to be any 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 pushback from Republican voters, it will have to come from some kind of um, argument from Republicans, from, you know, either Republican senators or, uh, you know, a possible Republican um, primary challenger in, in the 2020 primary. I don't think that's likely to happen. Um, but, it, it, but again, we do have to back up here. 
this is unlikely to happen at the moment. I mean, right now, this is just really President Trump just kind of spouting off. Um, But I do think that there's this idea among Republicans who are very wary of Trump and Trump's influence and Trump's influence on foreign policy that, well, look, yes, this is kind of a fever has taken hold of uh, uh, of Republicans, you know, that they do have this idea that, well, if Trump's doing it, then we can trust him and it's okay. But that that's not really, you know, once once everybody comes to their senses, um, you know, once once Trump is gone, um, then then everything will will um, will sort of resolve itself to pre twenty sixteen. I just don't think that's true. And you're going to have to, if you believe that uh, something um, uh, that that. There's something sort of fundamentally flawed in President Trump's approach to national security and foreign policy, uh, and you're a Republican. Um, you're, you have to make the case in the way that I think some uh, Republicans and conservatives are making the case on trade um, that, that I think will in many ways save uh, the the free trade argument um, that, that, uh, that Republicans have long made uh, for the past two decades um, within the Republican Party. But you got to do this on foreign policy, too, because um, it will stop being something where, oh, it's just – Republicans backing Trump up because it's Trump and he's their he's their standard bearer, and it just becomes uh, uh, accepted uh, an accepted viewpoint that uh, that 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 you know these dictators uh, need to be uh, talked with um, as long as it's our guy doing the talking. You know, uh, Hugh Hewitt had an editorial in the Washington Post today saying, "Oh, you need to even if you don't like Trump, you need to vote for him." And this kind of comes on the heels of George Will's column, which was. I don't know if I'm correctly summarizing it, but vote for Democrats. Right. And um, my old colleague, Rory Cooper, a former spokesman I worked on a campaign with him, he he, he says, hell of a midterm strategy you got there, guys. Collusion is not a crime. Tariffs are the greatest. The globalist Koch brothers are a joke. Shut down the government in October. We know that the Trump's, uh, that President Trump's most ardent supporters are going to get out and support uh, Republicans, and I, I think you know the, the the valid question that you raised with uh, House Republicans, Senate Republicans, staying true on the message of trade is how are, are they going to turn out? Are they going to vote for Republicans? Are they going to vote for Democrats? Are they going to vote for Libertarians? And then here we have the Koch brothers, who uh, Chris. Um, fund part of the Mercatus Institute, which came up with a big study about uh, the cost of socialized medicine. But on the other hand, they're also saying that they're not going to back certain Republican candidates. Um, Do you think that the um, ambivalence of the Koch brothers to fully back the president is kind of indicative of where a lot of kind of establishment Republican types are nowadays? Well, I think a lot of that has to do with the definition of establishment Republican. I mean, that, that definition seems to change every 15 minutes. My contention has always been that you're an establishment Republican the second that you're elected to be uh, a Republican in Washington, D.C., because Washington, D.C. is the establishment. Um, I, I think what's interesting to both to kind of try to wrap your point uh, and, and Mike's point together is that there are certain people who are advocating more traditionally conservative um, ideals and not just necessarily in in low stakes ways, um, but things that are kind of core to what you would describe as conservative policy orthodoxy. I mean, I I've always had a difficult time, for example, trying to frame uh, what constitutes being a conservative on foreign policy, just because you have to introduce this whole new vocabulary of terms, you know, like like realism and isolationism and interventionism 
and these sorts of things that don't neatly overlap with what it is to be right or left on economic matters. And I do think that trade really is the perfect example of that at the moment. Uh, you go back to the 1980s, and Reagan was having to deal with a Democratic Congress that was ardent about trying to introduce uh, tariffs and, and even quotas on certain imported products. Back then, our big trading adversary was Japan, another rising East Asian power, and the issue uh, was imported cars. And you had the likes of Dick Gebhardt and, and you know, Dan Rostenkowski was the Ways and Means chair, and he was a little bit more moderate on this issue, a little bit more amenable to being moderate, at least might be the better way to put it, on, on these issues than Gephardt was. And Reagan was pumping the brakes left and right. I mean, he vetoed three or four pretty ambitious trade bills throughout uh, his two terms, and he would take unilateral action every once in a while simply as a matter of pragmatism. But he would lay out what his definition of fair and free trade was that seemed to hold across generations of, or at least one generation of Republicans from the 80s to the 90s and, and now here into the 21st century. And it seemed to be something that, to a large extent, a lot of Democrats and Republicans in a town not known for bipartisan agreement on a lot of things, to a large extent, you know, both parties seem to come around on the general idea of free trade being a good thing. Now, all of a sudden, you do have... Trump, who is sticking his thumb in the eye of that and sounding a lot more like a Dick Gephardt type on a lot of this uh, kind of stuff, um, and less, much less like Ronald Reagan. So I do think, to Mike's point, that that's going to be the thing that, you know, maybe beyond 2020 or maybe in a post-Trump environment, that's kind of what, you know, preserves the core Republican values on policies like that, because there's something tangible that you can rally around with respect to the Koch brothers and these other groups. Uh, that, that have some things in common. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just think about um, politically, I think it's an open question right now about whether, uh, about how, say, trade will play in the 2018 midterms. We've been mm -hmm. seeing and reading a lot of these polls in places like Wisconsin um, and Ohio and Pennsylvania um, and Illinois and Iowa. Uh, about uh, outrage about the about the the trade actions and and, um, and 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 these things are very unpopular in the polls and maybe this will translate into uh, if not votes for Democrats at least a depressed vote for Republicans I think that's the, the, the that to me is the big question um, about uh, about what's going to happen in the midterm elections is there mm -hmm. going to be a big boost um, for Republicans if you know, Trump plays his cards right. Um, you can read some of the immigration stuff as as that kind of thing. Um, him trumpeting, obviously, as he should. Um, the the great economic numbers as saying, aha, this is great for Republicans. So go out. You know, Republicans are in charge. Go out and, and keep voting Republican. Um, and and I don't know. I mean, it just seems to me that um, it's an open question about whether or not. Um, I I don't see how Republicans like in the Senate and the House. Um, can in any way sort of make a case that, um, oh, well, free trade, I mean, they're, they're, they're trying, they, 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 they ideologically believe in free trade, but they're uh, running in a party whose leader is diametrically opposed to them on this. <laughs> and they can't make a political argument that says, um, you know, actually, these trade, these trade uh, actions are bad. So vote for us. Um, because we believe in it, even though, but but our party's leader doesn't believe. It. I mean, it's okay. there's this like cognitive dissonance to it, mm -hmm. and, and we I don't want to do anything to stop him. 
Right. Well, they don't want to do anything or the, or the things that they do are sort of, I mean, if you do and do anything to stop them, then you're sort of angering, um, if, and some of these primaries left over, um, you're, you're angering your base. So the, what you end up with is a very muddled message, I think, on, on economics and trade. And that mm-hmm. cannot be good for Republicans going into a midterm in terms of getting people out to vote. If that's the discussion, if the discussion is about trade or economics, um, a good economy, I think, is counterbalanced by a muddled message on trade. You don't have that problem on the Democratic side. The Democratic side has a lot of problems. Um, you know, when it comes to abolish ICE, I think is a huge, huge mistake strategically for Democrats to, to sort of grab onto and try to and try to ride. But they are sort of united around the idea that uh, – if you don't like Trump, vote for us. That's kind of a unifying message that'll get uh, Democratic voters out. And this could be kind of a race to the bottom in terms of like how many of how many do you hope of your own voters, uh, or, or rather of your opponents' voters, are depressed. Um, and I think Democrats have an advantage there. Um, unless there can be some kind of more unifying message from Republicans. I'm reminded of uh, Ferris Bueller quoting John Lennon, and this might accurately describe how the president views things. I don't believe in isms. I just believe in me. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. And, uh, and lots of, But lots of people do believe in one ism, and that's Trumpism, and a lot of folks don't. And the question is, where are the, where are the ones who don't? Uh, where are they going to fall? Uh, let's end this on a uh, an a sports-related note here. Uh, we have an Atlanta Braves fan, a Cleveland Indians fan, and a Cincinnati Reds fan. And the two of you guys did business. Chris, do you want to briefly fill us in here on the trade deadline, which uh, passed uh, about 20 minutes ago, I think? Yeah, I feel like this is all of a sudden going to turn into like a niche fan graphs baseball-style podcast <laughs> discussing such a minor transaction as this. But the Reds traded a Mendoza line power hitter in exchange for a few bench players. And I think the move is to create a couple of roster spots uh, for Atlanta, which is flush with talent, uh, and the Cincinnati Reds are decidedly not in possession of that. So, well, they had a, uh, they had a terrible like first couple, you know, first you know couple dozen they games. They fired their coach. They have a new coach who's actually like doing pretty well, pretty much playing 500 ball. But the uh, the Braves are like half a game back, and the right. Yeah, mm-hmm. in the NL East. Yeah. yeah, and 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 really, I think I agree. Chris have have the talent that they could go. Um, uh, pretty far, maybe even all the way to the um, uh, uh, to the championship, the NL championship game, if they can um, beef up their talent. Um, they, they've sort of sagged here in the middle of the season, um, been just over 500 since about May. So um, I, th- I think it's a good move for Atlanta, uh, mm-hmm. but we'll see. We'll see if they can. I mean, they just need a little bit of power um, uh, to back up what they've got from um, from Albies and Acuna and, um, and and Freddie Freeman and the rest of the gang. Prediction: I don't think we need to worry about the Washington Nationals. With you know, apologies to Andy Ferguson and the other Nats fans in the office. <laughs> no, I don't yeah. think so. So the Indians eight games up, AL Central. We got Leones Martin from the Detroit Tigers and a pitching prospect for one of our really good short uh, shortstop prospects in the minors. And we're just beset with injuries. We're eight head, eight games ahead in a division that saw and um you know we're not the team we were when we went to the world series in 2016 and like any true cleveland fan i'm a pessimist but i watch every damn game thanks for listening to today's uh podcast say the same about our listeners to the podcast we might be pessimists but you listen to every every damn episode and we appreciate that 